Hey, how you doing, Mark? Hey, great to see you again, David. Um, it's good to have you on here live. Um, people are filtering in. We've got some people tuning in watching. Um, I'm going to give people just a few more seconds as they filter in by playing the intro. How about that? Sounds good. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Deal Making, the broadcast podcast YouTube channel where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things. I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like. Be sure to hit subscribe and let's get to it. So, Mark, first of all, it's great to see you again. So glad to be with you, David. I love spending the time with you. And uh, for those in the United States, happy Thanksgiving. But you've already been there. Hope it was a great one for you. Well, you know, I, I love Thanksgiving. I love all the Thanksgiving food and everything. So um, once upon a time when the border was a little bit more easy to navigate with all these rules and things, um, I used to sneak down there for this weekend. And uh, of course, everywhere you went, there was turkey, right? So it was good. But um, Mark has been on my channel twice before and both times talking about using whole life as a vehicle for accumulating equity, basically to create your own liquidity pool, to have money, to be able to do personal and business things. And uh, Mark came in and was a guest speaker in the Business Buyer Adventure Group Coaching Program. Um, I think it was last month. And we had recorded a call where we talked about the other ways that people use insurance when they're involved in business that are going to be able to, to give people sort of advantages and tools and tips and tricks. And I know there's a lot of different strategies. One of the ones that I've always heard about is, you know, if you're in business with a partner, you know, how are you going to deal with, you know, the succession of the business if one of them should pass on or something like that. And then of course, uh, the whole life, bank on yourself strategy that we talked about before, of course, can be used within a company as well. What, I mean, when you're talking with people, Mark, in, in your practice and, you know, you do, you're a certified financial planner. So you talk with people about their personal um, finances. Uh, what percentage of your clients are entrepreneurs? Maybe over 50%, maybe a, close yeah. to 60, possibly. Yeah. Maybe and more. So yeah, it's a lot. We're talking about people that have more complicated financial lives. They're not just taking home a paycheck and, and filing a simple tax return every year, right? So they have these different things going on. Well, what are some of the key things that people come to you to talk about when they're looking at using insurance strategies within their business? What are the, some of the goals people are trying to achieve? You know, that's a great question. And it sort of starts off with the beginning of listening to people's goals. <laughs> it uh, sounds like such an obvious starting point. It should be where every financial consultant or financial advisor, financial planner starts, David. But unfortunately, too many people, too many financial professionals rush to a product mm -hmm. uh, or a, a mindset possibly or a philosophy for investing, whatever. Um, hey, everyone needs an IRA. Everyone needs whole life insurance. Everyone needs a hedge fund uh, you know, document. I don't think that's where to start. I think it really starts with questions like, hey, tell me what your mom and dad taught you about money when you were a kid. And how does that impact your business now? You're obviously a successful business owner. You obviously have found some real success. Tell me what are the lessons you've learned in this successful business? 
I'll ask him questions like, you know, how approximately how much working capital do you genuinely carry on your balance sheet? You know, what do you spend your working capital on? Uh, sometimes I'll say, hey, if you had to just pick one thing, what is it that mm -hmm. keeps you up at night? What worries you the most about your business's future success? And so these are kind of the questions that get us started. But then I'll think often further about the, I'll, I'll ask some questions around where they're currently putting away for their future. You know, David, I, I think most people have some sort of defined contribution plan when they have a W-2 employment arrangement, like an employee uh, yeah. arrangement. And oftentimes that might be like your RSP or the 401k, whatever. And the trouble is, at least not that I'm aware of, there's not exactly 401ks that just rain out of the sky when you start an LLC. Mm -hmm. you, know, you don't just obvious you don't just automatically get a retirement account just because you decided to be an entrepreneur and yet um, retirement comes for all of us someday you know whether we plan for it or it's forced upon us in fact a recent study said that almost 60 percent of retirees were forced into retirement before they were ready for it due to a, an illness or a family member getting sick and this is just as true for the entrepreneur as it mm -hmm. is for the the wage uh, wage individual as well. So asking questions about any particular frustrations a business owner might have on their qualified plan contributions uh, is a great place to just start the conversation and truly listen uh, to what their needs are before we rush to judgment. So <clears throat> retirement, I mean, that's this is a pretty big one. You're talking about how we're going to take advantage of the earnings within the business to grow some kind of nest egg that's going to be able to take care of someone in the future. A lot of the times, you know, people, when I'm talking with them, the sale of the business is one of the things that they're planning on. Mm -hmm. And when you and I talked before, when you were in um, doing your, your expert guest call, you were talking about how some people will use insurance products as a way of actually facilitating that uh, succession. Can you give us a little bit of an insight into how that yeah. works? I'll tell a story. Um, so sure. I won't use any names or details if I can help it, but um, there's a uh, company I'm working with right now, the business has been valued at about eight and a half million and the owner is going to leave at some point and they're deciding how will we pay this owner fair compensation for his equity in this business. And so there's a number of factors that we've already set up that are really going to make the transition just butter, like melted butter smooth, David. It's, it's going to be truly tremendous. Um, they have years ago, set up several business-owned whole life insurance policies. Now, these are assets on the balance sheet of the business. It's an asset that can be used as working capital for their capital expenses and what they expect that they're going to need for marketing and, and uh, inventory and just other needs the business might have for their business. Uh, they are using and have used that many times to pay for things, mm -hmm. uh, like I mentioned, inventory, whatever, but also taxes, and other just needs that the business has. Okay, so it's a it's a true cash flow management tool, but it's also a uh, key man solution. If the owner of the business should pass away, a key man is a key person in the business uh, who might possibly impact the business if he or she should pass away. So that's an, okay. a second use case. The third use case: this policy is building a massive amount of cash you know, six, even now seven figures of capital in these several policies that they have. And when he should decide to leave the business, pass 
pass uh, the business on to the next generation, they will have a source of money by which they can either give him the policies as fair compensation for the business, and he can walk away with those policies now as his own asset that he can generate an income in retirement on, or the business can keep the, the policies on their balance sheet and give him fair compensation as an installment sale, let's say, 200 grand a year, whatever he wants to negotiate. They keep the, the policy. They borrow from the policy to pay the owner, the former owner. So he gets his, but the death benefit is still on the balance sheet of the business. So many, many decades later, if he should pass away, that's a huge windfall then to that business. Um, not to mention, and we haven't really talked about this today, David, but if the policy was designed the bank on yourself way, as they're borrowing from this policy to pay for his installment sale, the cash value is continuing to earn uninterrupted. Grow. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. So that's an uninterrupted compounding asset for the business or, or the owner, should he take it with him. Uh, so all of what we just said did not involve a bank. And it did not involve market risk. And it did not involve, if, if we did it right, any unnecessary taxation. It was a private contract between the owner and the business itself. It, it sounds like you're describing a situation maybe where there's more than one owner or that the, mm -hmm. there's like the, the buyers have been identified within the business. Would that be accurate? In this case, yes. It could yeah. easily be different in that in other cases, though. When, when you and I were talking before, we were talking about a situation where you might have two people that own a business together. And, and this might be the most commonly advertised or promoted method for when you know insurance can really be helpful in a business is when you have two partners, for example, and then you run into the question, well, what happens if one of them should pass? Can, can you describe, do you have a story or, or, uh, that you can tell us about that kind of scenario? Yeah, and, and really the 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 problem is made clear in how you described it. If I'm 50-50 partner with you, David, in a business, and let's say, you know, you and I are selling widgets and we have a $10 million business and I'm a very important part of the cog in this widget machine, let's say, and I don't show up to work because I'm on, I, I moved to the opposite side of the grass over the weekend. Whoops. <laughs> uh, my wife is automatically now your partner, whether you like it or not, whether she likes it or not. And she's going to maybe have her own ideas about how to run this business that you now own and share together. Mm -hmm. Many people don't want that arrangement and many spouses would prefer a check in the mail for, you know, the equity, you know, 5 million bucks or whatever it is. So this is a buy sell agreement where you and I would arrange to, uh, you know, have a policy on one another. If you should pass away, then your spouse would get, your heirs would get um, the, the, the check death benefit. And if I should pass, same thing. And it's just a way to kind of solve that problem. That has traditionally been used with uh, life insurance uh, and specifically uh, term life insurance. The problem with term life insurance to solve that need is business values can change. Maybe you and I have now a $12 million widget business, but our term policy is still just, you know, 10 million bucks, you know, totaling 10 million, five each, let's say. Now, um, whole life insurance, the death benefit can grow if we designed it correctly. Right. Uh, also, there's no working capital inside a term insurance policy. You and I are simply renting that life insurance for 10 years or 10, 20 years, whatever. There's going to be an expiration date on the term insurance. In fact, they price term insurance to expire before we do. That's why it's so cheap. 
Okay. And then well, finally, yeah, it's designed on average to not pay out. That's I mean, right. It's, yeah. It, 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 it's real insurance. It's like your you know, insurance against your car catching on fire, for example. That's right. Yeah. It's just yeah. the pure uh, net cost death benefit. There's no equity accumulation. And, you know, the recent studies that I've read uh, from the Department of Insurance uh, Association of Insurance Commissioners says that 99% of term insurance does not pay a claim. So it's essentially free money to the insurance companies. Not that term is bad. It's just not necessarily, um, you know, uh, you're not going to see that death benefit most of the time. Tonight, we've got uh, Kevin joining us from Central Florida. He says, hi. Hey, Kevin, how you doing? And just a reminder for anyone, if you if you put a comment there in the feed, uh, we will, towards the end, get into some of the some of the Q&A. We'll answer some of the questions that people have submitted. Um, so let me ask you this then, um, if there are more, more, if there's more than one owner in a business, uh, at what point should they be looking at these kinds of solutions? Is there a certain benchmark as far as success or cash flow or profitability where people should begin to say, hey, you know, we need to start considering this because we have something here that's, that's worthwhile, you know, assuming a business was started, for example. I'd be curious your thoughts on this, David. My own two cents would just be as soon as you have profits and maybe as soon as you have revenue, uh, to consider something uh, in the realm of a buy-sell agreement. Uh, we can talk further about employee benefits and executive bonuses and golden parachutes. But you know, at the very basic, you should, there should be some sort of a, an agreement written with an attorney's help, possibly, or, or at least legal Zoom if, or, or David's help, maybe, uh, to get a really good uh, walkaway plan. Everything in your life, you probably need some sort of an exit ramp on, you know? Whether it's you know getting out of the um, getting out of the, uh, the 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 business that you're in with your partner, or just as simple as you know leaving the the uh, 4-H club for your kids, you know at some point you need to find a way to get out of the things you're in so that you can do it well. What what would you say though? Well, it's interesting because I, I get asked the question a lot by people who say, well, "Should I have an exit plan when I start the business?" And what I typically advise is that the time to create an exit plan is is when you've got things functioning well enough that you're at least paying yourself a fair market wage for the time you're spending there. And because you could end up pivoting and changing the business quite a few times in a startup scenario before you get it working right and you're actually making money. At, at that point, you've got a going concern. You at least are owning an entity that's providing a job for yourself. And the, the caveat though, is that we're talking about, you know, two people together and, you know, I would not give that same advice about a partnership agreement, for example. Like if you're going to start a business with somebody, you need to have the agreement from the beginning. And so uh, maybe in that partnership agreement could be outlined a trigger clause that says when we achieve a certain level of sales or when we achieve a certain level of profit, we will then go and get this kind of buy-sell agreement insurance. That's great. I think that's a really smart way to do it. Yeah, and David, I'd, I'd defer to your judgment on that. And for the uh, single, for the solopreneur, I think that's a great way to frame the the uh, the timing of things. Well, it, some questions are starting to pop in here, which is which is awesome. Um, one of the things that we had talked about uh, in our call there with the Adventure Group was using insurance products as um, as an employment benefit, as a way of making things um, attractive or stickier for the best employees to stick around for the long haul. Can, can you describe how people can use that kind of thing? Sure. Okay. So again, I'll talk in terms of the United States financial yeah. products, but there's obviously Canadian equivalents here for everything. And I think we should say that, like, I mean, Mark's in the States, but 
from the conversations I've had with people around the world in different countries, um, similar tools are available in different countries with different names on them and different acronyms and different abbreviations attached to them. But if you know what the goal is that you're trying to do, you go and you talk to an insurance person and you say, um, wherever you happen to be, you say, this is the outcome I'm trying to achieve. And they'll, they'll know. And if they don't talk to another one, because mm -hmm. there can be some variation in the knowledge and familiarity between different people in this industry. But generally, the types of solutions Mark is talking about are available in other parts of the world. Well, yeah. Well, and, and guys, I got to just say, you got to speak with the experts here. David is absolutely, he is the person I have, I've sent many clients, uh, talked to you, talked to my, many clients and sent many to David uh, on projects and topics related to what we're discussing here, both in terms of buy, sell and arrangements for sale, sale of business, but also uh, em employee strategies like this. So let me get into some ideas here. And you're exactly right, David. I can't emphasize how just spot on you are. It depends on the goal of what you're trying to accomplish. Hmm. Guys, where you put your money makes it do different things. And too often when I get that employee job, my first job, I remember when my wife got her first employee job, she got that 401k binder just sort of dropped on her desk to sign here and sign here. And then we'll see in, you know, after your vesting period of seven years later or whatever, um, and we didn't know what a 401k really was. Really, we didn't know. If you had told me when we had signed up that taxes would be going up over my lifetime and that markets were going to underperform, 401ks were going to underperform markets, we might not have really been thrilled with putting more than at least the company match into a 401k. So what are our options? If you're a business owner and you want to attract or retain the best employees, are we having trouble hiring in Canada right now, like in the United States, David, what's it like in your neck of the woods? Yeah, it's it's the most common gripe I hear from business owners you know, for for a whole wide variety of reasons. You know, I, I I have my own theories about what's going on out there, but I think that um, you know a lot of the government programs have kind of wound up, so people that need to get a buck need to get some money are out there trying to trying to work. But I think. I think the labor force has shrunk. I think that people that were on the cusp of retirement that were, you know, just probably going to stick around for another couple of years have probably shaved a little bit off of their working career, given what's going on, especially at the upper end of the labor force. You know, these are the people that were most at risk for, you know, becoming ill and stuff. So there's all kinds of things, but yeah, that's a big complaint around here too, is people are having a hard time finding workers. Well, it's certainly the case, and there's probably 10,000 reasons why for sure. But um, yeah, I think you're exactly right in terms of people maybe retiring a few years earlier than expected. Case in point to what we were saying earlier, that we need some kind of exit plan, uh, even when life throws us a, a curveball or a pandemic of curveballs. Uh, so um, when, when you're trying as a business owner to encourage, attract, and retain your best best possible talent to make your business as profitable as you want it to be so you can sell it someday for the best possible price, you've got to have tools and retention strategies. Now, any garden variety franchise is going to offer the 401k or, you know, even worse, a simple IRA uh, or a SEP. Uh, and those are fine. But what are they? They're tied to the markets. They're mm. tax deferred. What does the word deferred mean? Well, it just means push off until a later date. Now, if you ask 99 out of 100 Americans if they think taxes are going up in the future, like not this, maybe not this year and maybe not next year, but over their lifetime, 
they're all saying taxes are going to go up. So why do we keep putting money into tax-deferred 401ks, IRAs, and the rest of the, the, the lot? What if you've had your employees that were the, you know, the envy of your competitors at your, uh, in your business, but instead of a bland 401k that nobody cares about anyway, they had a, a bank on yourself designed whole life insurance policy that their employer was helping contribute to. And this whole life insurance policy had a massive amount of cash value that the employee had access to, to finance their cars, their children's colleges, their own, you know, back deck improvement on their, on their home or their real estate rental property or their trip to Disney world. I mean, the pool of money that every employee has, do you think that that would make the employee uh, happier to work for you? You bet. Do you think it would keep them with you? Yes. Can you even include some documentation to have like restrictive covenant agreements so you keep them invest invest that premium that you're giving them over seven, 10, however many years? Yes, you can do all of those things. Uh, this is called a 162A plan. It's in the IRC tax code in section 162A. And it's a great way to incentivize and retract and retain. And it's a business deduction for you as the employer to put that money into their pocket uh, as a contribution. It's just like a payroll expense. So it's a great tool for keeping people around. So it basically you're directing part of their compensation into this plan and it keeps growing and growing, but there's some language related to it that they have to stick with you for some kind of period of time in order for them to benefit to the full extent of, of the program. There's language you can include if you want it written. Uh, and the way whole life insurance works is there must be a premium paid for at least seven years into a policy. And seven is a special number. We can get into why that might be. It involves some of the tax nature of life insurance. Uh, and it's the same, I believe, in Canada as the United States and other countries maybe as well. Um, but seven years is how long the premium must be paid for. So if you know, um, Susie, the best sales gal in your team, she joins your team, you start funding her whole life policy at 30 grand a year or 10 grand a year, whatever that number needs to be to keep her around. And then she leaves in two years, she's on the hook for 10 grand. What's she going to do? You know, well, she's going to think twice before she leaves your, your, um, your employment because she wants somebody to keep throwing money into that thing. Cause Johnny, her little kiddo, Johnny is going to go to college someday. And yeah. so that keeps her around. Um, beyond just the legal documents you might set up for them. So it, it, now what I can think of right off the top of my head is a difference between some kind of retirement plan, like a 401k or an RRSP is that, is that as long as you put money in there, everyone's qualified, right? You just, as long as you haven't hit your limits or whatever, but with something like what you're describing there, people have to be uh, past the underwriting criteria for the insurance, correct? That's and, right. And, and so does that mean that, this kind of thing would have to be sort of individualized by the employee, perhaps? Yeah, there's a couple of things here. So you can receive this money as uh, for any purpose. So let's say that nine out of 10 of your employees can get life insurance and one is very sick, unfortunately. They just, maybe they're recovering from a cancer or something unfortunate like that. Hmm. What can we do in that case? Is that kind of your your question? Yeah, yeah. For example, if you're trying to have everyone have the same opportunity, what happens in this case? Well, in this case, um, I'll just quickly mention, you don't have to make sure they all have the same opportunity. With qualified plans, there is a, a minimum contribution requirement and everyone has to be treated equally for the government to consider it a qualified plan. Okay. Your janitor and your worst sales guy has to be paid the same 
401k contribution that the best sales gal would get. I don't know if that's exactly fair to be, to be quite honest, you know, shouldn't compensation be based on merit. And, uh, but that's another conversation in a non-qualified context like life insurance, you can give more money to Susie than you do the, the trailing sales guy in your team. Your best sales gal can be paid more. Uh, now, um, there's a more to that, but I'd love to know your thoughts on that. So it's, it's now you're talking about not just, uh, sort of, a. It's not just a long-term stickiness. What are they like? One of the terms I often hear is like golden handcuffs or golden Mm -hmm. cage. You know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd like to go do something else, but it's just so lucrative for me to stay here. It doesn't make sense. But now you're also incorporating a a bonus structure into it so that it, 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 well, I guess both purposes just kind of compound with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, you can offer it to three out of your best sales folks and not offer it to the others. You can do less for one. You can do custom tailored retention strategies. You're right. A golden handcuff, you might say. And it it does work out in that not only are they getting the money, but they have access to that money, which makes it even more lucrative. You know, the human psychological framework is a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, as they say. So if I have 80 grand in my whole life policy that I can use for next summer's home renovation, that means more to me than a hundred grand in a 401k that I can't touch until I'm 59 and a half years old. Uh, Now back to your point about folks not being insured. um, If, if really we can't get, you know, uh, you know, let's say Larry cannot get insurance for health reasons. Well, you can still pay him 10 grand if you think he's a great sales guy and then he can insure his wife, his children, his other business partners, he can put it into non-insurance pro- uh, non-life insurance products like a fixed annuity that would provide for him a guaranteed income for the rest of his life. Mm. Uh, lots of things that can be done there. Uh, but I would say first things first, or you could just keep the cash, you know, put it in a savings account if all else fails. Uh, but there's lots of options outside of life insurance. That's just one tool that I've seen work work really well to attract the very best talent. Okay. I, I think it's a great idea. And it's it's not something that you often hear talked about. And this is why I wanted to bring it up here on um, on our show. And I, I'm noticing that we got a bunch of people watching, but people aren't hitting the like button. So if you could just hit the like button, it really does help out it, with the algorithm. It looks like looks something guys. like this, right? It yeah. looks like this. Yes. <laughs> um, we have a couple of questions here. You want to you want to open the door here to questions, Mark? Sure. So we have one here from uh, from UH. It says, "Hi guys, do you recommend to switch from 401k to whole life insurance?" It's a pretty big question. What do you think about that, Mark? Well, you know, certainly as a CFP, cannot recommend anything over YouTube. That's going to be my bland CFP answer so there. It depends. Um, yeah, it depends. Yes. <laughs> the, the obvious and default answer, I just push the it depends button. Yeah. Uh, now, depends on what? Depends on your goals, what you're trying to accomplish. Are you the are you the owner of this business? Are you the employee? Um, you know, what did I do? Well, we lowered down my wife's contribution to the absolute minimum match. Uh, and then we, when we left her employer, we cashed it out. Now I typically wouldn't tell everybody to just go run and cash out your 401k. We figured we were in our late twenties at the time. We saw where things were headed. We'd rather take the money, put it into a whole life policy, pay the taxes and the early withdrawal penalty. It was only 10%. And we figured taxes would go up more than 10% over the next 40 years. Do the math on that. Right. Uh, and so we put that into our whole life policy and we have not looked back since I do not have a 401k personally. So 
Is it really just the the question of when do you want to pay your taxes now or in the future? There's it, that. There's taxes are a big one. Access to money. What could mm-hmm. you do if let's say you got 30 grand in a 401k? Uh, I was just talking to somebody who had 50 grand, 50 grand in an IRA. And right now they're starting a brand new business, her and her husband. Now their income is like very small this year. So when does it make sense to pay your taxes? Because you will pay taxes on your 401k or in this case, her IRA. Does it make sense to pay your taxes later when your business is booming and your income is way higher and you're now taking money out because you're forced to under the required minimum distribution rules? Does that make sense? Or does it make more sense to get the money out of the 401k or IRA now while your income is low and you're just starting your business and while tax rates could possibly be much lower right now too? You know what? Uh, As you're describing this, I did this. So in my early career, just out of university, I had a, a I was putting a lot of money into RRSPs here in Canada. The same same kind of deal, right? You you put in, you get a it lowers your income, you save taxes, and it's you take it out later, it becomes income. And so uh, when I got into business brokerage, when I, I mean I bought that business, but it was still had a lot of startup elements to it, and I wasn't sure what kind of paycheck I was going to be able to draw for myself. So I took money out of the RRSPs and. Um, for that very reason, because when I put money into the RSPs, I was in the in one of the higher tax brackets, and then I was taking it out when I was in a lower tax bracket. So I actually was able to employ a bit of arbitrage there. That's awesome. Uh, I don't tell anyone in Ottawa, but I might have gotten ahead on the game a little bit. That's great. You know, <laughs> so when I, I think that's so smart, David, I think that's great. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd say who does the qualified plan make the most sense for? Like, where do I, and we do offer, there's strategies where we do plenty of IRAs every year, tax deferred. We do lots of, uh, we do lots of cash balance plans uh, and 412E3 plans. Great, incredible strategies. David, you and I haven't really talked much about, uh, but are incredible uh, strategies for for business owners. Uh, But here's case in point. There's a dentist I know who makes very high income right now, but he through a couple of life circumstances, don't does not have enough saved for his retirement. So by pouring money into a tax-deferred plan today in his late 60s, where he is right now, he'll be in a much lower bracket once he retires. Why? Because he has not a, not a lot saved and he's playing catch-up. So if you're in your late 50s, early 60s, and you don't care about access to money and you don't believe taxes are going to be egregiously higher, then a tax-deferred plan might make sense in your, in your circumstance. It all comes down to goals, right? Yeah. Well, and and precisely back to the in, initial thing we were talking about here tonight is is you have to start with what are the goals and what do you what do you want to have happen, right? Um, I've got another question here. It's an interesting one. This is from Ian H, uh, who says, "What are the average? What's are the average rate of return of whole life policy versus stock market returns?" Wow, you, you probably get that question a lot. That's a great one. Yeah. Well, let's first have a little fun with math. Let's do a little math of magic. Would you like to, David? Yeah. All right. So let's say you have 10,000 bucks and you want to give me to invest your $10,000. So $10,000 goes into my investment box, whatever my box is. And I double your money. I give you a 100% rate of return. Mm -hmm. So now your $10,000 went to 20,000 bucks, right? You're happy. So you stick that money back in the box for year two. But unfortunately, my investment box loses you half of your money half of your money. 
So your 20 grand goes back down to $10,000. This is after two years. So after two years, have you, do you feel any wealthier? You started no, with 10 grand, you ended with place. 10. Yeah. Now let's do the math. Your average return was 25%. Go up 100% and then come down 50%, divide by two years. That's an average return of 25%. So why am I going through this, you know, kind of pointless uh, ex exercise here, David? Well, the average return of the stock market the average return of the stock market over the last hundred years is somewhere between eight and 10%, depending on if you include dividends. Hmm. Okay. But the actual investor's dollar return change in value from the last 30 years, that the, the longest period of data we have, that's a long time for most human beings, right? No one's going to invest for a hundred years and still be alive. So for a 30 year period from the time we started our 401ks till now, the real return of actual investors over 30 years was, wait for it, 2.6%. If you were invested in yeah. uh, target date funds. Now, it's more like 3.5% if you did all stocks. But it's 2.6% if it's target date funds and index funds. Now, okay, first of all, that's third-party research according to Dalbar. Yeah, totally check that out because that's a super crazy report. But Dalbar is D-A-L-B-A-R. Uh, look up their their annual research report. It comes out every year. Uh, that shocks me when I see that result. David, does that shock you too? Well, no, it doesn't because I I would argue, I would probably say that if you took that 30-year span and you just started adjusting it like one year here and one year there, you'd probably end up with a much different result because it's not just the rate of return on average because you don't, nobody invests in the average year. Like you, you- That's right it depends what happens in the years you're in it. I was having this conversation with, with one of my adventure group members earlier today, and they were talking about how somebody with, um, you know, 10 businesses, for example, might go in and be more bold and, and maybe offer more for a business and than somebody who's trying to do their first deal. And, and the simple explanation is, is that when you already have 10 businesses, you can, if you overpay for something by a hundred grand, it's not going to kill you. You have all of these, other, you know, successful things going on, making money for you. But if you're doing your first deal, it's got to be a good deal. It has to be a good deal. And mm -hmm. if you do your first deal and you overpay, then it's going to take you that much longer to get to the point where you're, you know, having all kinds of free cash flow. You paid off your debts and things like this. And so we were, we were talking about entertainment businesses. Uh, someone we know has an entertainment business and has done very well with it, but they didn't buy it in 2019. Because if they had bought that entertainment business in 2019, the whole path that they had gone on would have been very different mm. with what happened in 2020, right? Yeah. And so, and, and that I think is a perfect illustration. Like you could put a bunch of money into stock market investments and then have a really bad year and mm -hmm. it could take you a decade to recover. That's, that's right. What, what, you know, Ian's question was, what's the average rate of return one versus the other? I'll tell you what I like about participating whole life insurance policies is that when the dividend is paid out, the val cash value ratchets up and then it's it doesn't ever move down. It's it's locked in. So you create mm -hmm. a floor. And I did buy a policy a little while ago and uh, I was worried what might happen with the with 2020. Uh, and when I got my year end report, my dividend rate went up. Yeah. So what that gain is now locked in. 
That's a great, uh, great story, David. Thank you for sharing that. I, I have, I have oftentimes talked about because the whole life policy return, the, the change in value is going to be middle single digits. It's never going to be, be the best year of the stock market, right? You're going to be bored to tears with whole life insurance at four or five or 6%, whatever it is over the long term. It's going to be a, now that is a tax free, tax free return. So you'd need to get, if it's 5% in whole life, you'd need, depending on your tax bracket, you might need to get seven or eight or 9%, depending on how many fees you have and what your tax Good rate point. is on a 401k. But still, it should not be con like, I don't typically look at whole life and investments even under the same lens because one is a risk and one is not a risk. One whole life is more like your cash equivalents in your portfolio, less like your brokerage account or your 401k. And you, you're exactly right. When you get a when you get a cash dump in and your dividends from the last year, David, they can't take those away from you. Those become part of your guaranteed net worth, right? Well, it's it's interesting because um, we often hear about people recommending a mix between uh, stocks and bonds, with the idea being that the bonds are fixed income and they're more stable somehow. But if you're going to invest, the reality is that a lot of uh, bond funds have gone up in value because uh, yields have been falling. And so the they're making a capital appreciation on the bonds. It's not that they're buying them and holding them to maturity and, and taking the coupon all the way through. And so like right now, bond funds are really high because interest rates are really low. The same effect happens in reverse. So if you, we've been hearing in the news about inflation and when, usually when we have inflation, it means interest rates go up. And so we are, there is a very real possibility that the value, the unit value of a you know, bond fund is gonna go down, right? And so I've, I've heard several people mention that you, if you were gonna plan a diversified portfolio and you wanted stocks and some kind of fixed income, the whole life policy could actually stand in for the, the fixed income low risk portion instead of being invested in a bond fund. And that was not, um, I don't know who you were listening to, David, but I've read similar articles and these are PhDs in retirement research. These are not insurance agents out there to sell you another policy. You know, these are well-established David Blanchett, Wade Fow, uh, and these are people who have PhDs in retirement and, uh, uh, the, and the overall assumption is that your bond fund could be replaced and have a better yield and a better income in retirement through cash value life insurance, as opposed to say just another bond fund that could go up or down, like you mentioned. Uh, yeah. I'll mention very quickly too, um, depending on uh, the gentleman who asked the question, I wanna also clearly say, hey, there's insurance costs, especially in the first few years. Hmm. So you know the, the real thing to consider here is long-term capital appreciation is what you're gonna need to look at this as, not a get rich overnight or get rich in one year. There's not a, in fact, there's a negative rate of return on whole life insurance, right, David, in the first couple of years, because you're buying that death benefit. But if yeah. if it was designed the bank on yourself way, and there's, there's probably a couple of bank on yourself professionals you could reach out to in your area, you could reach out to me or anyone on our team, of course, but um, you, know, you really want to design it to cut those expenses down, but we can't eliminate them all the way. They're going to be there. So we have to really look at this as a long-term play. We got another comment here from Sari Ibrahim, who says, I look at whole life as an alternative to a savings account. I, 
I think that's a good analogy too, isn't it? Yeah. In fact, uh, folks definitely check out Sari. He's on, I see he's on LinkedIn. It looks like, uh, so check him out. He's a guy I know and trust to have set these up. Um, I don't trust many people to design these policies cause I've seen them done poorly so often. That is a big risk, David. We could talk about that if you want, but for employees, for employers, you want to make sure that you're working with a competent financial professional. I know Sari personally, I think he'd be a great guy to talk to about this just because I've mm -hmm. seen his work and I know he can do it right. But there's 400,000 life insurance agents in the United States. I looked that up one time and that's like one for every 800 Americans. Now, if, if there were 400,000 heart surgeons, David, and you needed heart surgery, would you just go to any of them? Or would you like make sure that they were doing it right <laughs> before you went under the knife? Well, if I had choices, I'd, I'd, I'd want to find, make sure that the person I was dealing with knew what they were doing for sure. Yeah. I, I found too many people thought they had one of these policies and they ended up having something that was going to get taxed in the future called a modified endowment contract, or it was, you know, really built more for the commissions or the death benefit, which lowers your cash. Um, I just talked to some, a couple out in New Jersey. They're going to have to wait 20 years for their index universal life policy just to break even due to all the costs that are riddled in that policy, in those policies. Now, um, you want to work with the right person, I guess is the short way to answer that question. Yeah. Um, we, we have another question here and um, says, apologies, I joined late. To what extent do you suggest examining companies' insurance coverage during due diligence for a small deal? So a lot of the times in, you know, when we're looking at a company, we're talking about liability insurance or, or insurance for buildings, machinery, equipment, and stuff like that. Is, is that within your sphere of expertise, Mark? Um, examining a company's insurance coverage during due diligence. So I would assume this would be like your liability coverage, correct? That's what it sounds yeah. like to me. Yeah. Uh, in this case, I am not a property and casualty insurance agent. Uh, I would agree that you do want to look at their due diligence, see their contract, ask them for to make sure it's still in force and read the read the uh, exclusions of that contract for hail uh, or, you know, acts of God or other things that might not be included on that contract before you make a purchase. That's a great question. Yeah. So in, in my experience, oftentimes a small deal is going to be done as an asset deal which means you're going to have a change of entity. So um, to Panajaber, um, you're going to need to talk to an insurance agent or broker, uh, either the one that the company's using now or one of your own, uh, because in all likelihood, you're going to have to put a new policy. And so talk to a professional in the, in the liability, property and casualty insurance area and find out what they recommend. Because I'll tell you what, what I've seen many times is that you, you talked about how things change, how you can have a business that grows and, um, you know, people didn't keep up with, like you gave the example of term insurance, you know, suddenly the business is worth way more than the insurance policies are. I can tell you, I know several stories of people who had liability insurance in their business and they just kept renewing policies for years and years and years, and then had some kind of catastrophe and, and realized that, oh my goodness, we actually don't have enough insurance or there are certain features of our insurance we didn't know about. Uh, one friend of mine personally, uh, they had an industrial accident. Thankfully, no one, was, no one was injured, but they learned at that time that their policy, not only did it have a maximum payout, but it had a, a cumulative maximum. So 
even though the year was only half done, they've they've used up almost all of their their potential payout. So if they had a second accident, mm. they wouldn't have been covered, and mm -hmm. and they didn't really know this. So they they had to do a complete review, and it's probably something that people should be doing every couple of years in business anyway, just reviewing these things to make sure they have the right policy. David, I, I think that's really wise, and I'll defer to your wisdom on that, man. I think those small deals uh, being asset purchases, I think that makes great sense, and I just think it's so smart. You know, it's like the boring adult stuff to review your insurance policies. I mean, don't we have something better to do like Netflix? <laughs> um, but uh, it's so it's so important, and I guess it feels like half the time. Maybe you could comment on this. Most it seems like at least half the time, my conversations with business owners is just helping them see the bear traps that they're that they're trying to avoid themselves but they may not even know exist you know the unseen risks the unknown unknowns as the as the phrase goes uh, and i think what you do so well is you you have laid out for your your followers your listeners your adventure club members the people who you're in cahoots with um, they're just not going to be stepping on any bear traps unnecessarily at least a fewer of them you know if they can help it well, that's that's certainly the plan. I mean, that's that's the idea behind it, right? Is to work together with with people that are more experienced. And, and I got to tell you, it's it in the business buyer adventure group coaching program. It's not just me. But there are other members now who have executed deals, and they're still in the group because they want to do more. And so, it, what's really great is when some topics come up for discussion. Not only is it me giving my commentary and feedback, but other people will give their uh, comments and experience. And it's, it's interesting because the, the wide range of experience. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story and, and I know this has nothing to do with insurance, but one of the guys in the group bought a business related to firearms. And so they, after doing the deal, he got an inquiry from someone in another country and they wanted to do, they were trying to source a certain service that, that they were offering. And then the question came up, am I even allowed to export this? You know, what are the rules? Well, wouldn't you know, someone else in the group actually had experience with certain kinds of, of technologies that are regulated. And he knew exactly, you know, this is where you go. You have to go to this government department and they maintain a list of these things. And, you know, they will tell you if if someone from a country A or country B is or isn't allowed to to import that thing. And so it was, it was interesting because it was the first time I'd ever really run into someone who might face those kinds of regulations. That's so cool. It's just um, a testament to the community you're building, David. And I think we're all better for it. So I'll say it on behalf of your audience. Thank you for <laughs> building this because really you saved that person how many thousands of dollars of attorney fees and weeks of delay to get back to this potential buyer. And what a cool thing to be able to get that resolved like that in a community, you're bringing, you're bringing business buying back down to the you and me level, which is where it's been for thousands of years. And mm -hmm. only recently has it been elevated to this mysterious thing that only multinational corporations are allowed to do for some reason. But no, I, I, I've met the people that you've worked with. Some of them have, have set up policies or other accounts with me. And it's so cool. Uh, one person sold some highly appreciated stock. He dumps several hundred thousand dollars into whole life insurance. And within the same six months or so, within a couple of weeks, actually, of starting his first two policies, he's borrowed that money out to go invest in another business that he learned about through your program. And so it's just a really cool symbiotic connection where we're bringing business buying down to the you and me level 
And I guess I'll, I'll humbly say I'm trying my smallest little bit to help people bring banking back down to the you and me level. I mean, there's a book out there by David Graeber, uh, great first name anyway, David. Uh, the, the name of the book is Debt, The First 5,000 Years. Oh, yeah. It's right over there. Do you have that one? Yeah. yeah. What yeah. a, what a yeah. crazy title, right? Um, and it's just a reminder that banking exists like in the ether of human civilization. And we can either be on the, the borrower's side of the desk or we can be on the banker's side of the desk. And if we can control the banking function of our business, because um, business is going to go through a banking cycle, it's going to need capital, it's going to need working cash. Whether you borrow or pay cash, you're going to need access to capital for major purchases like, you know, or, or sale when you get the windfall. And so you're going to be in participation of that business banking cycle. You might as well be sitting on the right side of the banker's desk so you can operate and I found, at least humbly, that whole life insurance of all things, properly designed whole life insurance, can function like a bank in your business or for your family. Mm -hmm. And it just, it brings things back down to the you and me level, sort of like you've shared with that awesome story uh, of, of, of that buyer and seller. Yeah. Um, one last question here uh, from the same viewer, Panage Bear. Um, Follow-up, is director's and officer's liability insurance common in the small deal arena? Thank you. Um, so in my experience, I most small businesses uh, have one director. You know, it's like the owner, right? And director's ins liability insurance, in my own personal experience, has been more of a thing when you're like volunteering on a board of directors or something and, and you want to limit you know, hey, I'm giving my time here, but if something happens in this organization, I don't want to end up getting sued personally. That's typically where it is, where in a small business, if you are the owner and the director, you're there every day and you're running it, you're, you are directly in charge of what's going on. So, you know, the consequences of something going on in the business are going to end up being your problem anyway. But again, talk with an insurance person uh, because they're obviously going to have the checklist of potential threats and they're going to be able to advise you on what kind of insurance you should have. And it's it's interesting. To, it's kind of interesting to me that the whole world of insurance kind of got split between like life insurance and, and things related to that, like annuities and stuff like that. And on the other side, sort of the property and casualty, auto, home, business, et cetera. Um, and, and like, is it really because the life insurance stuff is really more of kind of the investment sphere of things? Um, well, if you're asking me, I, don't, I would not know. That's above my pay grade um, for sure. I will say that uh, both relate to, it's, it's sort of a, it gets a little philosophical here, but you, you might say that what is property but an extension of your life energy? Mm -hmm. You know, um, my energy that it took me to buy that car in the garage over there could be counted in terms of life hours if you wanted to kind of break it somehow down into that. And so there is a relationship between that. And I would also say that people, they more properly insure their cars than they do their own lives, which I think is a real shame. Real shame. Um, but uh, you, you really think about it. You know, let's say you're 30 years old and you're making $100,000 a year. What is your life worth? Well, there is no real calculated way to, to value a human life. It's, it's infinite. But at the same time, you know, that hundred grand, if you never got a pay raise, might be, oh, um, three million bucks by the time you retire, mm -hmm. you know, 
So you should at least look at that as your start starting point for life insurance. And same is true with your other assets, umbrella insurance, li you know, liability insurance for your workers, your assets on your business, um, business overhead insurance. Yeah, you're right. It's it's all life energy. Uh, sorry to bring the scuba gear on that question, David. But uh, yeah, listen, Mark, I'm I'm 100 on the same board with that because I, I mean, this relates to the mission of why I started the channel back in 2014. I mean, when I started to answer questions about buying and selling businesses, it was because I'd gotten emails from people who were describing how they got into bad deals where they lost their life savings. So if that happens to a person, what it ends up being is that they work and work and work for years and years and years to save all this money. They literally take their time and labor to create this cash. They lose it in a bad deal. What have they done? They have retroactively enslaved themselves and all of that time they put into that for the benefit of this other person. And I draw the comparison quite often to um, the people fleeing Ireland during the potato famine days, because there was a practice where people would indenture themselves. They would trade, you know, two years working on a farm for a ticket to cross the ocean. Mm -hmm. And those people had a complete understanding of what they were signing up for. They were going to work really hard for two years without a break. And it was going to be absolutely terrible. And they were trading that for getting over there. Right. And so they knew what they were doing, but when somebody does a poor job when they're making a business purchase decision and they overpay for a business or they get into a bad deal where they lose out, they can end up doing this to themselves without actually understanding what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I've met business owners who've overpaid for businesses who get stuck. They owe more than it really is worth. And they end up being the people who work 60, 70 hours a week just to try to you know, pay those debts to pay for things so that they can then get clear of it. Well, those people did the same thing. They they indentured themselves to the benefit of whoever they, they bought the business from. And this is why it's so important to not mess this up. You know, I alluded earlier to the guy who might have 10 businesses if he makes a mistake on an 11th, like they, that person can bear the burden of that error. It's the person who's really starting out, who, who's making their first deal that has to get everything right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, um, we talk in the financial retirement world in terms of sequence of returns, the sequence of returns. If you, if you lose money, uh, right as you're getting started at retirement, then that's a terrible disaster relative to if it's your like second to last year of life. You know, if you lose a little money in the market and you don't have much left to lose, then that's fine. But if it's your first year not working, you know, you not only did you lose a larger sum of money, but you, you know, you have longer to have to suffer that loss and you know you're taking money out for groceries and grandkids and retirement so it's it's true it's so true you know you never want to lose money but it's especially true at the beginning of a project to lose money like that um your first deal like you say or yeah. right when you start retirement you never want to lose money especially when you need it the most mark let's let's wind things up where can people reach you well, this has been a lot of fun, David. Thank you for the opportunity and great questions, everybody. Uh, again, uh, Sari Ibrahim, if he's still on, I bet you he's in the comments chatting with folks too, but uh, check him out. I'm My name's Mark Willis. You can find me at notyouraveragefinancialpodcast.com. Uh, we try to do a weekly podcast on sort of counterintuitive financial strategies. So that's notyouraveragefinancialpodcast.com. Yeah. And, uh, and I tune in from time to time and it, I, I really Thank like you. it. It's a good show, Mark. And with that, I'll say, see you later, everyone. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. It's, it's going to be a busy week. Uh, Black Friday is this week and 
Um, if you haven't already, you want to get onto the email list at David C. Barnett list because I do have some Black Friday offers in the spirit of celebrating what Darth Vader is it his holiday? That's it. That's it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So um, <laughs> get on the list if you're if you've been thinking about some of my programs and you've been kind of like on the edge, on the fence, not not knowing. Like get on my list because over the next couple of days, I'm going to be releasing a couple of specials, and uh, there might be something there for you. And with that, I'll say see you later and have a great night, everyone. Don't forget to hit the like button. It doesn't cost anything. And it really does help me out. Cheers. <laughs>